Welcome to Biot Live. I'm Tom Bartley, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe October 23rd, 2010. Biot Live is a continuation of the Biot Podcast. For more information on the Biot Podcast, please go to biota.org slash podcast. And, uh, well, I'd like to start with an apology. We haven't been recording a lot of Biot Lives recently. I had a Springer chapter due uh, and various other family-related things going on currently. But, of course, the big news was released uh, a little earlier this week with the conversation with Miro Karpish, associated with the Artificial Life Forum. So I've been putting a bit of time into getting the Artificial Life Forum online, and certainly uh, it will probably be launched quite officially through uh, a Biota Live with probably a number of guests. I think we have Eric Burton in the chat, so I'd just like to send a, a hello out to uh, to Eric. Eric will be appearing on the next Biota Live in two weeks' time, uh, where I guess the topic will be his ongoing development. And uh, it'll be wonderful catching up with Eric. Obviously, we've been following the Critter Ding, Critter Drug, Critter et al. Uh, developments, and uh, Eric has been a, a kind of community leader in that development. And I think the last group of folk we had on was... Um, Sam Smith, uh, known as SEH, uh, and his uh, his associate as well in Philadelphia. I forget that fellow's name. Apologies out uh, if that fellow is listening in as well. Uh, because yes, it's wonderful to get updates associated with uh, with all artificial life projects. So um, artificial life related news. Uh, well, there have been lots of emails coming through the artificial life announced mailing list associated with various conferences and things that are going on uh, in Europe currently. And, ah, yes, that's an important point. The reason we are now recording on Saturday mornings is to open up both live to a lot of our European listeners. Uh, we have a lot of folk who listen in, in the UK and Europe. Obviously, the history associated with the recent Artificial Life conferences has been, uh, yeah, the, the UK and Europe have featured rather heavily. So for folks listening in, who are in the UK and Europe, please consider calling into Biota Live. We will have on uh, Tim Taylor uh, today, who is, I believe, either calling in from Edinburgh or London. It's PSC keeps relatively equidistant between those two points. And yes, we're interested in uh, reaching out to the European artificial life community, uh, probably for the next few Biota Lives, actually. So I'd like to welcome uh, Tim Taylor to Biota Live. Tim, is this is your first time on Biota Live? Would you like to give some introduction to who you are and how you got interested in artificial life? Yes, absolutely. And, um, yeah, first of all, just um, it's, it's great to actually be talking to you, Tom. I've been listening to the podcast for a number of years now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd like to, to thank you, actually, for all the work you do in, in producing the podcast. And uh, it's, it's great to actually uh, talk to you. <laughs> well, it's good to be able to speak to, to people such as yourself. I mean, this is certainly the reason I started uh, all these Biota podcasts, was to, to reach out to people such as yourself. So thank you very much. Great, great. Okay, so a bit of background. Um, well, where to start? I, I studied um, at university, I studied a, a selection of sciences, including um, experimental psychology, but the course I was doing was such that it allowed me to to do a number of different courses uh, of different subjects, and I, I just did the things that interested me without any particular game plan in mind. But I, I ended up studying experimental psychology and geology, including paleontology, uh, cellular biology, 
history and philosophy of science, um, including the work of, of Darwin. Got to the end of all of that. Um, I kind of specialised in experimental psychology and then moved um, up to Edinburgh, uh, which is where I am now, um, to do a course in a master's in artificial intelligence. And that, that was in the early 90s. And after that, um, I, I, I worked for a couple of years and then came back to Edinburgh in, the, in 95 to do a PhD. And it was around that time, it was really about 94, 95, I started getting interested in, in artificial life and became aware of Tom Ray's work um, on Tierra. And so my PhD was actually in the area of self-replicating computer programs and evolution, um, trying to really interested in the, the subject of whether you could create an open-ended evolutionary process on a computer where you, you had these self-replicating programs or entities that uh, would evolve more and more complex um, ecosystems and more complex individual behavior over a prolonged period of time. And that's basically been my research interest since then for the last 15 years. Yeah, needless to say, the PhD didn't, I didn't make any great um, practical uh, leaps forward in in the uh, state of the art. But um, I think I did at least... uh, identify some areas where systems like that are lacking in terms of evolve in terms of evolvability and maybe we'll talk about that a bit later but um just to say what i've been doing since then so i um in the last 10 years i've worked commercially quite a lot and also uh, a number of postdoc research positions i so i worked at math engine for a while which is a, a company i think you've mentioned a few times on the podcast Yes, I was going to ask you about that specifically because Math Engine did a, a series of talks and even open discussions at Biota 3. Did you attend Biota 3? Were you with Math Engine then? Now, which one was Biota 3? I, I, I went to one Biota, which was the one in Cambridge, UK. Oh, okay, that was Biota 2. Uh, Biota 3 was the one in San Jose, and I think perhaps what what may have happened was Math Engine attended. I'm not sure if they had any talk of speakers at, at Biota 2 specifically, but based on the contact that you obviously had at Biota 2, they then came uh, to Biota 3 and did, I think, two uh, displays. I've got a video, actually, that I was going to put in the Biota feed from their display at Biota 3, and they were also very heavily involved with... There were both formal presentations and also open discussions at Biota 3, uh, and I think Math Engine, like I said, probably gave two... Presentations. One of them may have been with Jeffrey Ventrella, or they were perhaps working together on the same presentation. And then there was an open discussion, at least one open discussion, that Math Engine was very heavily involved with. But it's interesting, actually, because I didn't realise that uh, Math Engine was at Biota 2, but that probably fits in very well. Uh, well, I, I don't know if they were at Biota 2. I, I was there. That was during my PhD uh, before I'd started working at Math Engine. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience at Biota 2, what, what that was like for you doing a PhD and, and being at a place like Biota 2? Well, that was, that was fantastic, actually. I mean, um, the Biota 2 meeting was amazing. Um, there, yeah, we, we have Richard Dawkins um, and Douglas Adams were both there um, talking, and Steve Grand, um, who, yeah, I think Steve Grand had... Uh, was one of the organisers, wasn't he? Because it was CyberLife based in, in Cambridge. Um, and there was this host of amazing people there. Mark Bedeau was there, I think. Um, 
uh, yeah, a whole load of, of really interesting and diverse people. And it was, uh, it was, a. Uh, it still sticks in my mind today as one of the uh, the best meetings I've been to because it was um, it, it was very small compared to sort of a, a, a standard academic conference and also uh, a, a more diverse range of people there and lots of as is always a way with these meetings the the, the most productive part is uh, talking in the bar afterwards um, I think it's the same with any conference actually you go and sit through all the uh, all the uh, talks, but you really the most value is uh, actually just sitting down and chatting with people after their talk um, and having a, a sort of group conversation going. Yeah, that was certainly um, a, a very useful and um, formative part of my PhD, just uh, meeting all the people there and uh, listening to what everyone was doing, getting inspiration. So, yeah, that was a, a great meeting. Um, were you there? I haven't attended any of the Biota conferences, and uh, there's going to apparently be one in Salt Lake City next year, which will probably be the first one that I'm able uh, to attend, although it may be an informal one. Uh, it's associated with the... They've got a long acronym, but it's the Philosophy of Biology. That's, yes, I know, I know what you mean, yes, and I can never remember the, uh, the full name, yes. But if you're attending that conference, that will, that will be maybe even a formalised... Liswan is organising a formal track associated with the origins of design in nature, Springer Book, but I think that will actually become either a formalised or a, uh, an informal biota gathering as well. I know um, a few people who participated in that book will be attending, and I think we'll probably get... Uh, people like Gerald de Jong uh, uh, over as well for that conference. So my hope is that there may actually be an informal or uh, maybe even possibly a formal biota, which I guess would be Biota 5, uh, in Salt Lake City next year. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, for me, it's so rare to actually meet people in the artificial life community, and this kind of vends into an aspect of what you've been doing recently. The only people that I've met in the artificial life community are even vending into it locally have been people that um, run uh, an independent artificial intelligence, artificial life-inspired investment company. And I understand that's what you've been doing for probably, what, the past five years now with TimberPost. When I introduce the topic of artificial life to people and they say, well, what are some of the interesting artificial life projects going on currently? I always point to the global financial system as probably being one of the most interesting artificial life projects that is currently in existence. Can you talk a little bit about artificial life finance and TimberPost? In 2005, I started uh, TimberPost with Peter Ross, who was uh, he's also in Edinburgh. He used to be the head of the artificial and intelligence department um, at Edinburgh University. And so we were both interested in evolutionary algorithms, biologically inspired computing, um, and um, uh, in artificial immune systems, amongst other things. So the idea was to uh, create a, a system that was able to learn um, how to invest in an investment fund. Um, the novel thing being that it would be continually learning. So uh, we, we started off... Um, with an idea of a, a an artificial immune system type approach, where there were we were continually looking for for new situations which hadn't been encountered before um, and adapting to those. 
this is very interesting because I've, I've wondered about financial models in terms of needing to model components of the whole system. But what you are doing here is thinking of the investor as being an immune response. The problems associated with investing in terms of either you model the system or you model the, the response to the system. And it's interesting, it's an interesting idea to model the investor as a kind of immune response to, uh, to the attacks of the system. Was this the idea with, with Timber Post? The basic philosophy we were taking, uh, it was, so we were doing essentially technical trading where you're looking at, at patterns of price and volume um, data over uh, historical data um, and learning from that. And the so the general idea behind that is that there are there may be detectable uh, signals within that data, um, and why that might be. Um, one answer might be that there are um, there's investor psychology um, behind it, and so uh, if a if a stock starts trending up, then people may spot that and, and join in and so the trend continues for a bit more the same for selling or or other more complicated patterns so the general idea was that there may be these short to medium term um, patterns that are caused by the behavior of investors and their psychology when they when they see that a stock is moving one way or another do you have multiple investor archetypes in that model are you dealing with multiple investor archetypes and you have populations of various archetypes of investors? So we weren't actually explicitly modeling the investors uh, themselves or, or the types of investor, although that would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, we, we were purely looking for patterns which were predictive of, of a future movement in the price of the stock. But the way we were doing it uh, was looking for patterns which had a uh, a good track record uh in the recent past but some we use some information theory to uh, uh sort of really understand what a good record would be so for example if um if you had a rule that said buy microsoft on a monday um, and just imagine that the Microsoft stock price was going up um, continuously uh, for a whole year, then that rule would actually be very profitable. Um, and yet it's not actually telling you much about the, uh, the stock itself. It just happens to be right. So you've got to consider the, uh, the general behavior of the stock during the period in which you're um, evaluating it and also uh, their behavior of the market as a whole. So, yeah, what, yeah one, one of the uh, tricky things was really evaluating what it means to be a good record. Okay, just to say there ended up being a lot more to the system than, than just the artificial immune system. Um, I guess, as is often the way in, uh, in large software systems, uh, the, the interesting machine learning bit was quite a small part of it, and we had all sorts of other higher level portfolio level risk management um, stuff on top of that so th there were lots of interesting problems to solve the local folk that i met with we went out to dinner and uh, had various other discussions but the thing that i found fascinating was that they didn't use any stochastic analysis in terms of the, the way that they treated stocks in fact it was all discrete algebra and various other curious methods as opposed to actual explicit stochastic analysis do you treat the underlying information as 
being trended in that way, or how do you treat the underlying information? Well, no, I, I think um, one of the things we really wanted to get away from was imposing a model, um, a, a sort of theoretical model um, upon the data. What we really wanted to do was was to treat the data in an as unmodified way as possible, if that makes sense, um, to and learn directly from the raw data without trying to um, make it fit some kind of of model. I, I think one of the things about um, technical trading and financial theory in general is that there there tends to be um, a lot of work where there are models proposed and people fit the data to the models and then go on and add all sorts of layers on top of that to the extent that um, people take these underlying models for granted without ever going back to reconsider the uh, assumptions upon which those models are made out of um, or built upon. And so very often in finance, you find people using models in situations which they weren't really designed for um, and where the assumptions that the models were originally built on weren't, weren't really holding in the, uh, in the current situation. So we wanted to sort of eschew um, any sort of established financial theory and just... Um, do a machine learning system based upon the raw data and we would evaluate thousands of different technical trading rules for each stock and purely look at the, the merits of each one in terms of how well it had done um, on recent performance. Um, and it was as simple as that, really. We were, we were looking for things that had, prove, had a proven track record um, in the recent past, and beyond that, we really wanted to um, to get away from imposing too much theory and preconceptions on, onto the system. The interesting thing about this kind of project is that the, in terms of the proven track record and the, the nature of near term proven track record, what you're dealing with here is just being slightly above the the kind of norm in terms of percentiles in order to make a, a reasonable. Uh, amount of money and it's interesting the the use of um, in terms of other methods and in terms of uh, direct human interaction which I guess is the the contrast to your method um, do you see the percentile gains being sufficiently greater than just the experience that a human may have over you know 20 30 40 years of doing this uh, in terms of non um, I guess non-assisted trading uh, well, okay. I, I mean, I think it's been well proven that um, if you look at fund managers in general, um, they uh, well, if okay, if if you look at the performance of funds over a given period and see which ones are, are performing the best, and then move that over into the the next period, the the correlation, um, i.e. the a fund manager's performance over, say, three years, five years, um, in one period, doesn't correlate very well with the with the next period. So, I, I, okay, I mean, for sure there are some managers out there that actually have a uh, a valuable contribution to the performance of their fund. 
but there are plenty who don't. Um, and also, the one of the big differences between um, managed funds and automated funds is the the level of fees. And and so, for managed funds, particularly with a, a human manager in there, uh, they tend to to charge a far greater far greater level of fees than a, a simple index tracker or something like that. And that really starts to, to eat away at, at the profits uh, of an investor. So certainly one of the advantages of having a completely automated trading system um, is that it, it would um, you would be able to operate it with lower funds and therefore provide higher returns. Now, whether those higher returns would go to the... Uh, the end investors or to the uh, the company running it is a, a question, <laughs> another question. But um, certainly the uh, the operating costs would be lower um, if you could automate the whole thing. You've described a very pragmatic reality associated with Timberpost, and I think the the vision associated with most artificial life developers tends to be more. I don't know whether ideologically or ideally inspired. Do you do you have any interest in terms of the financial system as an actual artificial life system? And is that something that you think about as you work at Timberpost? Okay, so I should say I'm, I'm not at Timberpost anymore. That's uh, Timberpost is kind of um, stopped. We we were kind of scuppered by the financial crisis a couple of years ago. We were working with a large bank in London, uh, but things. Yeah, the, it, all of our customers and potential customers kind of uh, either collapsed or um, uh, all of a sudden have much more um, pressing needs on their time um, other than uh, worrying about uh, a small company with a crazy artificial life system. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Timberpost is, uh, is on ice at the moment. Um, but in terms of your question um yeah i mean well there's a lot of work as uh, you you may be aware on modeling financial systems using agent based models and also looking at behavioral finance and and considering the effects of individual investors and um and their sort of psychology and uh behavior how individuals react to to news um, and how that combines in a sort of aggregate effect to contribute to, to movements in stock prices. So there's yeah there's a there's a lot of work going on in that area just now. But it appears from what you, what you described through Timberpost that you disregarded that approach when you were at Timberpost. So as, as a as a thinking artificial life inspired person you obviously probably have your own vision associated with the financial system as an artificial life system do you, would you like to share that with the biota live listening audience <laughs> well i i mean i should say i mean there there are loads of things we could have looked at and you are uh, there's only a, a certain number of hours in the day it, it would have been interesting to to do more sort of uh, modeling of individual investors one thing we did look at was um looking at the correlation of of movements of stock price movements between different stocks so so generally a a stock market is divided into various sectors and subsectors and each stock is classified in a particular as a particular type of industry and human investors and fund managers um, often tend to to think about investment in terms of these sectors. Um, but again, sort of 
going back to our theme of not wanting to accept any established theory, we, we did some work on clustering, time series clusterings, where we actually looked at um, what stocks were actually correlated with each other, um, which weren't necessarily um, belonging to the same sector. And also with the idea that these things might change over time. So, so we developed some, uh, some software to, to track correlations between stocks based upon their time series and how those changed over time. And again, that's uh, another level which we never really fully integrated. Again, it's all having the time and resource to do all this stuff. You, you can start to use that to plug it into the sort of higher level risk management uh, of the portfolio. If you're, if you're considering a number of different stocks which you think may behave in the same way or indeed wanting to add diversity to your portfolio by adding things which behave differently, so we did some work there, but um, and I should say, I mean, one thing I haven't said so far is that the system was actually working pretty well. We were, it was running live, not actually trading real money, but we were, it was running unattended and grabbing data off a Reuters server automatically every morning, running through the algorithm, generating a spreadsheet of um, new orders for the day automatically emailing those to a number of third parties um, in the UK and the US who were sort of tracking our behaviour. It's a pity you weren't playing with real money. I mean, certainly the locals that I went out to dinner with are playing with real money. And I think in terms of uh, immediate feedback to the people that are invested in their fund, the real money component is really the, the critical part, it would seem. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. And that's always a, I mean, that's a, uh, something that we struggled with and, and unfortunately never really managed to overcome. Yes, you need people don't really listen to you until you've got a, a track record of investing real money. Our systems with, well, our, our system at Timberpost was designed in such a way it was using um, trading a, it wasn't trading actual stocks, it was trading uh, what are called contracts for difference, um, which is a, a UK instrument which basically makes it cheaper to uh, to trade stocks and allows you to take short positions and long positions. Um, but the, this, the portfolio was such and you needed a, a certain diversity of investments in the portfolio. So it was as, as such that you couldn't really make it fly with a, a portfolio value of less than about £100,000 or something. And Unfortunately, we didn't have that money lying around to uh, to set up a test fund. We were talking to a, a number of people, both at um, investment funds and also individual um, wealthy individuals who were sort of interested in the idea of setting up a, a test fund. But uh, yeah, it was a, a case of bad timing. Uh, the uh, the financial crisis happened, and basically. Um, <laughs> all of this interest kind of evaporated. Well, yeah, okay. I, I think interest is starting to come back a bit now. But um, and, and my colleague Peter Ross is still um, keen on on making something out out of it, as am I, I guess. But um, to be honest, I was working in that area for four or five years, we, and it was fun and lots of interesting challenges. But um, to some extent, I yeah, I've got a bit. Um, I don't know. I found it a bit uh, disheartening, or at least not very uh, 
enriching, shall we say, uh, <laughs> well, financially, but, but I'm talking more about sort of enriching of the soul. The nature of risk in the US and the kind of investors that I think this local crowd was able to gather were probably more interested in substantial risk for substantial reward, which seems to go slightly against perhaps um, UK finance. I mean, do you think it's a, a circumstance where if Timberpost had a, a US office, it would probably be able to raise that capital considerably faster? Well, I, I mean, I think that's generally the case, yes, for, for any kind of startups. It's, uh, it, it's still easier to get um, seed capital in the US than in the UK. I mean, the, the situation has improved here, but um, it's still nowhere near as... Uh, as organized and sort of willing to take risks as, as investors are in the US. We, we were actually talking to um, an entrepreneur in, in San Francisco who was um, trying to hook us up with some investors there. And indeed, yeah, we, 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 we spoke to a number of companies in the US. And uh, yeah, we, we got uh, some way in that, uh, in that direction. But um, yeah, there were various stumbling blocks with uh, boring issues. Some of our investors and what have you weren't um, weren't happy with the deal. So yeah, but I think you're right. There is a uh, there is a difference in in attitude to risk taking and investment um, in the US, and and I think things are easier. I'm not. I'm sure it's not easy, but easier in the US um, than in the UK. So let's talk about the fun stuff now. You mentioned uh, you mentioned being inspired by Tom Ray. I'm not sure if you were at Artificial Life 10, uh, but we had the fellow associated with the Panspermia Prize on one of the early bio podcasts. What's your thinking about the, the Panspermia Prize and open evolution in artificial life? Actually, yes, that was interesting. Uh, so Mark Bedeau actually asked me and uh, a number of other people to talk to to Brig Kleiss uh, about the uh, Panspermia Prize. I, I wasn't actually at the conference when he launched it, but I did have some correspondence with him beforehand about it. I think I think it's great to have prizes um, in um, in artificial life and in, in any form of science, um, have something to go for. I think the way that uh, this prize came about, it, yes, we never managed to really pin it down to be an exact question where there could be some unequivocal statement of, of whether a particular entry had achieved the, uh, the solution to the problem or not. I mean, I think it is a, a fundamental problem in um, in artificial life, as I say, that's really my main subject, a topic of interest: open-ended evolution and and sort of ongoing increase of complexity of a system. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's great to have that sort of thing. I I think uh, Brig was always up against uh, and uh, he had an uphill struggle because of the connections to panspermia, and I think people were. Some people were a bit dubious about whether there was some underlying um, motivation behind this prize or uh, what have you. But Can there be a prize where there isn't an underlying motivation behind it? Well, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they can't. Maybe they can't, particularly if the money's being put up by, uh, by one individual. 
so yeah i i mean i i i'm not saying that to uh disparage Brigger at all i i mean i i think it was great that he uh he wanted to to set up the prize so yes i wasn't actually there at the conference when he launched it and to be honest i'm not sure what the the current situation with that is do do you know is it is it actually running i've spoken very critically associated with the notion of prizes in general but specifically with regards to Briggs prize it was really going to be a fraction of the return on the hundred thousand dollars and it was never really clear actually what that meant the thing that interested me about the prize which unfortunately we focused on rather than the discussion of, of open evolution in artificial life is that i think it was a a prompting point for the community and really could have been utilized a far greater extent i think the focus on the prize in and of itself became too much of the game and not enough associated with the actual underlying question and motivating new kinds of simulations certainly uh, the issue i mean there have been there have been probably i can think of two other artificial life prizes since then that have been up offer which have had similar um curious funders and really just uses of publicity uh for the for specific funders but in terms of the ongoing discussion, we had Tom Ray on Boat Live, I think probably almost about this time last year, if I, if I recall correctly. And he certainly still seems to be haunted by his interaction with Brig prior to the prize, where Brig was trying to get uh, Tierra, or at least motivate Tom Ray, in developing Tierra in a direction where it could categorically point to uh, open evolution in a, in a closed system and i think the thing that interests me about briggs prize was that there probably are examples of it in artificial life that have already occurred but just haven't been framed in exactly the way uh, that brig was talking about the whole notion of a closed system uh in in artificial life simulations is quite curious as well because a lot of artificial life simulations are inherently either leaky or uh, have some additional energy that goes into them. So do you want to talk on those points? Yes. Well, I think, yeah, this this notion of a, a closed system was a bit um, uh, difficult right from the beginning because, I mean, the, the Earth certainly isn't a closed system um, in terms of, of matter and energy. Um, and so I think Brig, from what I remember, was trying to to come up with this notion of informationally closed. And, I, yeah, I never really got that, really. Um, I mean, even in terms of information, uh, the, the Earth isn't a closed system. We, we suddenly get information in terms of uh, um, light, um, electromagnetic radiation. But information is also a property of understanding as well. I mean, this is the curious notion of information that even if the Earth could be considered a, a closed system in terms of information, information is only applicable to us in, as, in our understanding of that information or our comprehension of that information. And there aren't a sufficient number of humans or communicative humans or whatever it would take, even robots, scanning the Earth to basically make the information closed at any given time. It's a very curious problem uh, when framed even in, in real-world terms because although, as you describe, energy... Uh, and obviously scar stargazing and meteors and all this kind of stuff. Irrespective of that, the notion of information outside of perception 
is a, a very curious thing as well. And I think this is what's interesting with regards to, um, well, stuff that Tom Ray did with Tierra, uh, obviously other cellular automata projects, even Bruce Damer's EvoGrid has this element of information as perception rather than just information existing in the system. Do you, do you have some some stuff to talk on with that? Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I think there is a, definitely an interesting point there. And maybe from my perspective, uh, an interesting question is how in a physical system uh, determined by um, physical laws, do you get things like genomes emerging where there are, is information that is okay um, somehow decoded by the organism and has sense for um, in terms of that individual organism. So it really um, comes down to the question of the origin of agency. That is how in a system governed by physical laws, how do you get things emerging uh, which you might call organisms or agents uh, that seem to be behaving according to their own local rules of behavior um, and behaving for their their own good, as it were, rather um, than following the, the standard laws of physics of the system. Um, and so that's a, a question that I'm very much interested in. And I think... I think some of this goes back to to the ideas of um, in biosemiotics, which is a, a a topic that's been spoken about a few times on the podcast. Um, that is how how do signs and sign systems emerge in a uh, in a physical system? So I, I did some work on this. Uh, it was one of the last things I did just before I. I started timber post um on a, a cellular automata system where um i was trying to control um evolve the starting conditions of a cellular automata um such that it would produce behavior um that fulfilled some task that that i had imposed from outside so so the idea that i was trying to to follow up there was how the initial conditions or constraints upon a dynamic system. Um, and so the idea is that the genome is basically supplying initial conditions to, to dynamics, which are already out there in the environment. Um, and so you get this picture of these initial conditions generating behavior out there in the world. Some of, some of which may be beneficial to copying and replicating these conditions, in initial conditions, to the next generation, and so there's this from a, a systems point of view. It's a, it comes down to a distinction between the rules of dynamics of the system, the laws of dynamics, and the initial conditions or constraints. And so there's there's always this uh, epistemological distinction between the the laws of the system, the dynamics, and the initial conditions, and some of the work in biosemiotics, and um, I was very much influenced by Howard Patty's work in the uh, sort of 70s and 80s and 90s even, um, on, yeah, really trying to identify this as, the, as one of the, the fundamental distinctions in, that has allowed biological life to emerge and, and really solves this question of how agents evolve in a dynamical system. Um, it's this uh, this fact that they're 
the, the genomes are acting in a relatively stable way and therefore acting as initial conditions. They're, they're not reacting at the at a time scale um, at the same time scale as the other reactions of the organism. They're they're much more stable, and so they're they're providing initial conditions which generate dynamics, which go back to um, either propagate those conditions if if those dynamics are successful um, or not. So one of the things when I'm trying to explain biosemiotics to people um, is that some people get it. Some people think it's just a um, sort of a long-winded way of describing something that's obvious. I think there's there's actually a lot of value in the biosemiotics literature. I've also been inspired by uh, Jesper Hoffman Hofmeier's work as well. Um, and what I'm trying to do um, at the moment is actually, so that that work I did sort of five years ago, I'm now coming back to research and I, I'm trying to pick up where I left off there and really sort of run with this idea of the interaction between initial conditions and, and dynamics. Can I, can I push you a little bit on, on that? Because certainly I think what, what has been fascinating particularly in my own experience with Nobelape, is the notion of um, social networks and the way in which, from what you've described, the uh, interaction of agents and the underlying patterns in that interaction and the uh, social history that evolves through those patterns uh, creates an additional hierarchy of what you've described with, with biosemiotics. And the thing that interests me more is that this it, it seems to be almost a fractal problem that you start at the small you find a similar fractal pattern you move up uh, to as you say the stable agent and then you look at the stable agent in terms of its interactions with other agents you find another fractal pattern you move up and the notion of uh, intelligence and agency at each of these levels is, is somewhat blurred and then it, it moves up even further in terms of your own thinking is this is this where you want to push your um, your particular interest with, with biosemiotics? As you mentioned, that, that whole question of going up levels is is also a fundamental problem. And, and yes, the, the notion of agency gets more and more diffuse the higher up you go. But that's I think that's another big challenge um, in artificial life, which um, which maybe hasn't got as much attention as, uh, it, as it really should have. Um, it's this whole question of uh, being able to cumulatively um, build upon what's gone before, and uh, it's a it's a problem just not in not just in uh, modelling sort of artificial chemistries and going up to to cells and multicellular organisms, but also in uh, modelling agents and artificial intelligence. Just being able to have a to learn a particular behavior and then use it as a building block to to build up hierarchies of learning and it's a question there's a a great interface i think and uh room for collaboration with biologists and uh i went to an interesting talk by a primatologist uh last year uh who's done a lot of work studying behavior um in chimp populations um in Africa, and uh, and looking at how, so so these populations were able to learn behaviours, and there were he had a whole sort of matrix of different behaviours that these different populations around 
uh, Africa could learn. And some could learn some things and not others. Um, so this is social learning, learning from um, other chimps in the, uh, in the population. But the one thing that was missing in all of these things was uh, the ability to have a hierarchical learning process where having learned one skill, you could use that as a building block to, to build something more complicated onto it. And so I think it's a, it's a challenge in understanding that sort of crucial difference, how human intelligence is different from, from chimps and other animals. The thing that interests me uh, is, is computational linguistics as well, in terms of a, a real thing coming through the social sciences, obviously with some venting into, into historical computer science at least. But we are now getting to the stage with artificial life in particular certain, certain agent simulations where we can start to explain language information transfer akin to what is uh, described in, in computational linguistics. And I think what is interesting is probably that the social sciences will play, as, as they have really in, in the past decade, the swarm fellow uh, that we had on probably three, four years ago, started pushing the boundaries of this in terms of political science, maybe 10, 15 years ago, associated with using swarm models. But we now have sufficient computation and particularly good enough agent language models that we are, are probably at a good stage to reach out to a number of the uh, social sciences that are moving over into, into computational analysis anyway and provide quite interesting agent models um, in terms of communication, in terms of learning, in terms of hierarchy, uh, both, both agent hierarchy, social hierarchy. And so it's a wonderful time, really, because I think the problems that artificial life has faced over the past 20 years in terms of uh, relevancy and application, the, the simulations are getting sufficiently interesting that we can now quite easily pass them to uh, social scientists and do what we need to do on, on that level as well. Absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. Um, and also, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's exciting in terms of um, potential for collaboration with other, um, other subject areas. Um, I also think that the technology of the internet, I, I think all the, uh, the potential of HTML5 as a, to move the web really to a much richer platform uh, where you can do a lot of distributed processing um, on the client side as well as the server side um, and much fancier um, embedded graphics and uh, um, audio and what have you. I think it's a, a really exciting time for starting to do some very cool stuff with artificial life. Um, things which, yeah, up to now, it's, I, I guess in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been relatively little in terms of really groundbreaking different stuff. I, well, okay, I, I, I'll probably get some sort of... Uh, <laughs> flood of emails having said that. That's not the Biota Live narrative, unfortunately, Tim, yes. Um. <laughs> well, the, what, what, I, what I mean by that, let's just say, um, let's be clear. Um, okay, so you have um, a lot of work going on with uh, evolving creatures in 3D worlds, uh, sort of carrying on from Carl Sims's work. You, yeah, um, there is a uh, still work on um, 
uh, Avida and self-replicating code, um, that kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying there's no nothing interesting far from it going on in artificial life. I, I, there's a lot of uh, very interesting, much more applied work, and as as we say, um, uh, sort of collaborating with other fields as well. But I think in terms of pure artificial life, artificial life for the purpose of just the challenge of trying to create a living thing in a piece of software. Um, there are expanding horizons there with uh, HTML5 and, and other technologies coming in uh, that um, I'm certainly uh, getting quite excited about. And I think there's, yeah, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff coming out in the next few years when, when people really get to grips with this uh, new technology and and uh, discover new ways of exploiting it. So that was a very interesting way of not talking about what you're planning on doing in the next year or so. Um, do, you want, do you want to expand on, on your plans in the near future? Just uh, put that in context. So, yeah, I've been... Working at, I was working at TimberPost for four or five years and wanting to get back into academia. Um, so I recently, just a few months ago, started a new academic job at Goldsmiths in uh, University of London, which, which is actually only a part-time job at, at this stage. So currently I'm working there half-time and continuing work as a, a self-employed developer. Um, so it's a, it's, I'm kind of living a double life at the moment, but having achieved at least um, as a half-time uh, position a return to academia, I'm now, I've been thinking a lot about uh, what I want to do uh, in terms of re-establishing research, re-establishing research in the next few years. And the problem is I've been out for five years and uh, I've got plenty of ideas. So the, the question is really trying to prioritize and, and, uh, figure out what I really want to work on. Now, there are a number of interesting sort of sub-projects, smaller projects I want to work on, um, and they all basically involve this idea of interacting with dynamical systems and trying to control them by having some sort of evolution of the constraints applied to that system. Um, one thing I'm playing around with just now, which isn't, it's not a big project, but uh, I think it should be quite fun, is um, I've just bought a, a plasma globe, one of these things where you put your hands on the globe and uh, all the plasma filaments um, follow where you're, you're touching the globe. And um, so this actually came about when I was trying to explain some of these ideas to biologists a while ago, and I, I came up with this picture of a, a plasma globe as a dynamical system, putting your fingers on the globe uh, to interact with those dynamics. So your fingers are introducing constraints on the system. So I thought, well, what would happen if you could actually evolve um, a control of a plasma globe um, using a genetic algorithm to, to evolve some kind of display that is interesting in some way? So I've actually bought, <laughs> just bought a plasma globe. I've also just bought an Arduino chip. So I don't know if you're familiar with Arduino it's uh, it's sort of uh, related to um, the processing language, but it's designed for easy interaction with hardware. So it allows you to control motors and uh, um, sort of sensors 
uh, LEDs, all sorts of electronics, and uh, I think you can even get a, a library that allows you to to um, uh, process the input from a, a Nintendo Wiimote and Nunchunk. So that's all good fun. I, I'm 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 currently playing around with Arduino and um, playing around with some kind of more hardware type stuff. I also had uh, actually. So you were talking to Steve Grand a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Um, now that was very interesting talking about his symbiosis project um, because I had very similar ideas to the sorts of things he was thinking about in terms of having a sort of Lego kit of of modules which you could fit together and, and each module would have a different function like it would be a motor or would transmit an electric signal from one side to another or a light sensor. And the idea is you could just plug all these things together and the way they were plugged together, so the, the morphology of the thing, defined its function. Now... I've been thinking about doing that kind of thing on a software level and also on a hardware level. It certainly lends itself to hardware. And actually, what, what, you're, what you're raising is an, is an interesting point that I, that I wanted to raise with you. Symbiosis was released as Symergy on SourceForge, which means that the source code is, is out there and, and ready for the tinkering. What, what's your sense with regards to, and this probably you can lead back into discussion of, of using something like Symergy in hardware, but in terms of the past five years, there have been some interesting artificial life projects that have kind of continued in open source, and the hope is to move uh, a majority, if not all, of Jeffrey Rantrella's work into open source. Steve Grand has obviously put Symergy into open source. You were describing about the possibility of almost reinventing some work that Steve has already done and put out there in source code form. Do, do you think about the notion of open source in this context? Well, yes, uh, certainly... Um I like to release all of the codes. I, all, all of the stuff that I've done in the past has been uh, um, I've released the source code for. But um, I've, so I've been Steve, I've been speaking to Steve about this in the last uh, last month or so uh, about the software. I'm not sure this software is exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking of, but there there may be some uh, useful stuff I could reuse there. I was interested to hear though. I hadn't fully realized that Steve had actually made big advances in doing a hardware implementation of these sorts of ideas. Um, he had a grant from the British Academy um, to, to create some hardware along exactly these lines. And he, yeah, he made a um, significant progress, but then ran out of time or ran out of grant and it all kind of um, stopped there. So, one thing I'm speaking to Steve at the moment about, <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's any chance of doing it, is um, is picking up where he left off with the hardware. It seems a shame to to let all that work go to waste. Um, Do you think that some of the implementation that that um, is actually in Symergy, I mean the stuff that Steve has done, is a representation of some of the discoveries that he made through the hardware process as well, or do you think of them as two quite distinct projects? At this stage, um, I don't actually have many details about what he did in hardware. Um, I know he was working on these kind of ideas, uh, but I don't know. I imagine it was uh, uh, a lot more simple um, what was done in hardware, just in terms of the... Uh, 
practicalities and uh you you can be a lot more flexible and uh introduce a lot more complication more easily in software so i'm at this stage i'm not sure what the connection is between those two but i'm hoping further conversations with steve will uh will elucidate that so yeah in terms of me using the software um and yeah that's certainly something i will consider um that's one of the projects which is is maybe uh sort of second tier of my list of uh sort of wish list of of projects to to get on with in the near future the interesting thing with talking to steve on that particular podcast and i think maybe previous conversations that he's had on biota is that um my recollection of that conversation i've listened to it a couple of times since actually recording it was that he did describe even the software interactions very much in terms of well, some of them at least, in terms of hardware components, in terms of uh, in inverters and various gates and these kind of things. And I think this notion of hardware, at least analog uh, hardware representation in software, has really been a familiar theme from even even the pre-creatures development through creatures onto now. And I think probably there is um, there's a lot of information actually. I mean, as I went through the synergy uh, source. I really got the sense that this was, as you've described, a project that uh, had its roots fundamentally in hardware. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for Steve here. I wouldn't necessarily disregard the stuff that is in Symmetry in terms of being overly complicated because, really, Steve was still describing it very much in terms of a hardware kind of plug-and-play model. But you describe this as a secondary interest. What, what are your primary interests going forward? <laughs> well, um, okay, so... Basically, um, what uh, what you're normally uh, taught to do in academia is sort of narrow down to uh, small specific projects, and uh, so I've thought about a lot of that. But um, but basically, what I really want to do is uh, is create kind of the next the next tier, as as it were, um, something which uh, is taking the idea of, of self-replicating entities a lot further. Um, I, I don't know. The ideas are sort of formulating in my mind at the moment. Um, it's going to be web-based. Um, it's going to be uh, using a lot of the ideas that I've spoken about, about the sort of interaction of dynamics and initial conditions but in the context of of the internet so I'm, I'm hoping to evolve creatures which are actually using resources that real resources that are out there on the internet so yeah I, I, I'm really trying to tackle a big problem of um, having a, another crack at this uh, this idea of open-ended evolution um, with the experience of uh, having tried this and failed once before and um, the le- various lessons I learned from my PhD and subsequent work. When you describe technologies that are, that are out there on the internet, I mean, the thing that strikes me currently is that there are, there are projects currently being developed in the artificial life community, um, some actively, some passively, 
that are, are going out there on the internet already. This isn't what you're describing, though, when you talk about HTML5. You're talking about something considerably more primary. Can you frame, I mean, for example, the Evo grid with Bruce Damer, the Tetragotchi work that Gerald de Jong is doing, um, the stuff Bob Mottram is doing with Noble Ape Server. Uh, these are examples of, of things that are moving out there on the internet. I understand there are some uh, movements with regards to uh, framesticks and potentially other artificial life projects in terms of making them uh, distributed and utilising some of these resources. When you say out there on the internet, what, what are you specifically describing? Um, okay, well, um, w what I'm describing is actually treating a web page as an organism um, tr and treating the uh, sort of interaction between JavaScript and uh, the document object model as a sort of um, developmental behavioral layer um, and treating links between web pages as a specifying a, a geography of the internet. So what I'm, what I'm talking about is having an artificial life system really embedded on the internet using native HTML, JavaScript, um, and uh, yeah, uh, WebSockets, all, all of that, and all of the new things you can do with HTML5 in terms of web workers and uh, sort of uh, fancy uh, animations, graphics, but having all of these things evolving. So it's, it's actually a, a native internet organism, as it were, rather than something that you're simulating and, and just distributing um, via the internet, if that makes sense. Um, I think I, in terms of details going into that, um, I, well, I, I probably don't want to go into too many more details. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that I don't have too many more details at the moment. But it, it's uh, it's sort of that's certainly the lines I'm thinking about, and and uh, these ideas are, are coalescing um, as we speak. So um, so all I can say is watch this space, and um, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I I've decided. Well, I've done enough of playing around with toy little. Um, little problems um and i can do more of that later but what i'm really trying to do now is create a a system that is it's sort of groundbreaking on a number of different fronts and to produce something which uh which no one's really tried before so whether i succeed in any of that um time will tell but <laughs> that's I've, I've decided to aim big anyway and uh, and see what happens that seems to be a good theme in, in artificial life development. I'm, I'm looking at your, your homepage currently, and it mentions that you've just created a new course in creative computing. In terms of these kind of courses, how, what, what role does artificial life play? Right. Well, um, okay, so I've, I've not created the, uh, the course. Uh, that was done by other people in the department uh, a few years ago, but I'm now um, developing it um, in terms of the distance learning provision of that course. So, well, I should say, I, I don't know um, if you know anything about Goldsmiths. It's, a, it's an interesting place. Um, it's well known for art and design. It's got a computing department, which is... 
very much sort of trying to move more from basic computer science to to more fit in with the creative design aspects which which goldsmith is well known for so william latham is is a professor in the department um he works just down the, the um in the next uh, building from me and there are a number of there, there's some very interesting people there um doing work in uh sort of simulated physics animation um computer games all sorts of things so at the moment, um, in creative computing, so the idea is this is, is the intersection between computing and the creative industries, which are, include computer games and visual art. There's a lot of sound work uh, going on and, and all sorts of uh, creative industries. But in terms of computer games, there's uh, an animation course. There's some 3D physics we've just started william set up a an msc in computer games programming um recently uh with some colleagues and there's more sort of um games programming sort of graphics um animation that kind of stuff in there but there's no okay there i think there's some basic neural networks and genetic algorithms there's no specific artificial life units there at the moment and that's something that obviously i'm quite keen to um uh to introduce at some point in the near future i think the venn between uh artificial life and computer games is is well and truly i mean it's it now appears almost like artificial life is uh is is solidly in the venn of uh, computer games on a number of uh, a number of different computer game genres when you talk to people who are either current professionals in uh, in computer games or students looking to get into computer games, how do you talk about artificial life? How do you frame that conversation? Okay, I've not done a great deal of that. Um, but, I mean, what I have done, I, I think I always do it in terms of uh, animation, crowd control, showing some sort of classic artificial life uh, uh, um, topics such as Boyd's or um, Carl Sims's work, um, and really sort of trying to open people's minds to the ideas of uh, multi-agent systems, emergent behaviour, group behaviour, um, and evolution, genetic algorithms, that kind of thing, um, so that they can start to see the possibilities of um, what you might do um, in games which uh, which hasn't happened or isn't there so much already. It's an interesting problem and certainly one which Bruce Damer recently refreshed some discussion on kind of in the internal community. And you take a very similar line to Bruce Damer. I think the interesting thing that I've noted with regards to students and particularly students who are uh, studying things to, to move them into the video games industry is that they have a very keen uh, understanding of the historical element, but they are really fundamentally looking to create the future. 
And I think this is what interests me with the artificial life community in particular is that there are a number of strong uh, historical elements, but the potential for the future is far greater than what has occurred previously, primarily due to massive amounts of computation now and a wide variety of other factors that make the future actually considerably richer for artificial life developers. I guess the internal discussion that I've had with Bruce Dane, which you've been a part of, has been how do we motivate this discussion in terms of promoting the future, in terms of actually rather than coming in as kind of dusty historians to talk about stuff that went on in the 80s, actually talking about something that really can get people inspired, fired up and produce the, the next generation of amazing artificial life video games. And I think the it's, a, it's an ongoing topic of discussion, but one that I was interested in your feedback. And it's interesting that you do frame it very much as Bruce Damon did in terms of the historical uh, legacy of artificial life. I guess the stuff that interests me with artificial life, aside from you need to have an understanding of the history without question, but it's the potential for the future and the immense kind of simmering potential. How do you motivate some discussion associated with the future uh, for these uh, students moving towards game development and do you think there is almost a requirement of kind of projecting what will happen or what may happen in the future in order to inspire these uh, soon-to-be game developers? From my experience, uh, so when I was working at Math Engine, um, the group I was working with uh, went on to, to set up uh, the, the two guys I was working with, uh, who were Colin Massey and Torsten Ryle, went on to set up Natural Motion, which of course has been very, uh, very influential in the sort of games and, and film industry. Um, so there are some successes there, and basically it takes, it just needs someone with enthusiasm um, to actually go out there and, uh, and do these things. And so in terms of uh, inspiring students, Yes, uh, when I was at Math Engine um, and around that time, there was all this talk about um, could you set up some kind of AI middle um, middleware solution for games programs where there would be some kind of generic um, components that you could games developers could use uh, to to add AI and artificial life. Uh, to their programs. Um, that idea never got very far, as far as I know. Um, and I think, yeah, normally, f from what I can see, the, the code sort of, it's not a case of dropping in AI or artificial life um, from above as a, almost as an afterthought into the game. It, it needs to be much more sort of fundamentally integrated into into a game and so i think for for students you it's a case of um yeah showing the possibilities of, of what you can do and the uh the, the growing possibilities with new technology um new hardware um and just letting them uh, sort of really uh open up their imagination to to uh, what could be done differently, not necessarily going over the same old um, things, the same old genres of uh, of games, but trying to come up with something new. And that's something that um, in our creative computing course we're um, very keen to do, is actually to get the students thinking about new 
new applications, new ways of applying technology in different situations. So um, if you can do that, then you've, uh, you've solved a large chunk of the task already, I think. Mm. And for people who are listening in who may be interested in the history associated with some of what you've described, I'm a, a member of the International Game Developers Association and for a number of years was part of their AI standards body. And the thing that struck me about that body trying to do what you're describing is that there was a majority of the body that could have created what was needed and there were a couple of individuals that played a very strong political game, one from um, U.S. defense or the U.S. defense establishment uh, that basically completely nixed any kind of productive movement on that front. I still think the notion of a droppable AI similar to what is currently available in physics engines is perfectly feasible. I think there have been um, a very curious minority effort uh, within game development specifically to try to, and it's very much associated with the problem. I mean, there used to be a group of game developers that were very tightly involved with developing physics. As soon as middleware physics engines came out, the physics developers had kept kept to themselves pretty well were out of work or had to find other things. I think there was a small, there was a minority component in the uh, International Game Developers Association AI Standards Group that was like that, that believed if there was going to be a middleware engine uh, or even a suite of middleware engines that had a shared interface that they would be out of work, uh, perhaps rightfully so. So it was one of these curious things where the failures associated with creating that uh, drop-in interface aren't necessarily because the technology isn't mature enough for that. It was for other quite curious political reasons. But I think there's still great potential for that technology and certainly a kind of perennial topic on on Biota Lives and Biota Podcasts has been about creating a a similar thing for artificial life with a potential for some kind of subset AI component. I have my doubts about how useful that might be. Um, And I might be proved wrong, I probably will be. for physics, I mean, that's a, it's a well-defined problem. Um, it's something that you, once you've got the physics working, you can do all sorts of, uh, of things with it. it. It is something that you can easily sort of just plug into your system. It seems to me that the artificial life things are, well, for a start, these systems generally aren't that hard to in- encode yourself anyway. Um, and I think it's just more part of the sort of fund thinking about how these things should be integrated into a game to produce a playable game is, is the problem. I don't see that coding these things is generally the hard step. It's thinking about how they might be used um, for an enjoyable game. Well, I think what you're describing with regards to the coding, it's, it's easy to implement an artificial life system as you've described without question the difficulty is the the complexity involved in in player characters and environmental constraints i don't think that that's necessarily impossible i think the thing that interests me is that uh as a community we probably could create something that could be applicable to 80 or 90 percent of games the actual integration of that, the publicity associated with that, and the continued maintenance of that uh, is another thing. I think the problem associated with creating real uh, artificial life 
uh, environments within games is there for reasons other than the coding, the coding problem. I think there are other components that need to be uh, addressed. Um, so I think we're probably in agreement with regards to that. I think it's it's just a, it's a curious it's a curious absence. Oh yes, no, there are there are always uh, politics involved in uh, in these things, and uh, you have to think about who stands to gain and who stands to lose. But um, there we go. Maybe one of these days it will it will happen. I, I remain optimistic. Speaking of remaining optimistic, in terms of the artificial life community, I mean, obviously you've been following it for uh, for a good number of years now. What would you like to see in the in the near future with the artificial life community? Well, for a start, I would like to um, integrate back into it a bit more. I've not been to many conferences for a long time, so um, I'd like to get more involved myself. But in terms of uh, the community... Um, Okay, so I know you're you're thinking of uh, setting up a, a forum, um, and that's a, a, a great thing. Um, um, yeah, so I've been um, I've been sort of on the sitting sort of on the fence between being an academic and a, a hobbyist in artificial life in the last few years. Um, certainly, okay, I was working at Timberpost, but I was continuing to to think about my other sort of more pure A-life um, interests at the same time. Um, now, I, I know uh, you've spoken a lot about the this sort of uh, interface or distinction between the academic and hobbyist community um, in the past. Uh, I... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, as we were saying earlier, um, the thing about going to conferences is it's generally, um, unless the conference happens to be near you, it's going to be expensive to get to. Um, and that's a, a problem for academics um, often as well as for, for hobbyists. So in terms of uh, sort of just general community um Activities. I mean, I think having a forum is a is a good idea. Um, yeah. I've, um, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> in answer to your question, um, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. So um, uh, I know um, Dick Gordon has been doing these uh, Second Life um, uh, lectures uh, for a long time, and I've never actually managed to to get to one of those. Um, I mean, I think the specific topics are sometimes a bit too specialised for um, for my particular interests. But um, there there are sometimes some more general ones. I mean, that's interesting um, in terms of an alternative to uh, a conference uh, having a, a sort of virtual get together of people interested in a topic. So I guess that's something that, that might happen. Although, as I was saying earlier, I think one of the uh, things I really like about conferences is the, the most uh, productive part for me is uh, is chatting to people in the bar afterwards. So I'm not sure how much you, you get to, to do that or how much you lose that on it in a virtual world. So we'll, we'll see. But, um, yeah, um, in... In terms of the community, well, I'm just uh, looking forward to integrating into it a bit more in the future, and we'll take it from there. I think you've raised an, a number of, of interesting points there. I think the 
the forum may actually well be embraced more by the academic community than it will be embraced by the hobbyist community. I mean, originally, the way it was framed, and certainly my discussions with Miro Karpish and others, were that the uh, the forum was going to be really uh, an ability for uh, hobbyists and folks who are interested in connecting with uh, artificial life projects, open source artificial life projects, uh, to get the necessary information. But I think you, you're right. Probably the academic community would be as equally receptive to that. Although the distinction, I mean, my own view with regards to the distinction between the hobbyist and the academic is increasingly blurred. My concern is that the academic community doesn't understand that a number of, of the hobbyists, or I consider the hobbyist community, also publish academically. And I think you have people such as uh, John Klein. I mean, you've got Larry Yeager, who's now back in the academic community, but still has solid things into the hobbyist community. People like Jeffrey Ventrella, uh, even even Gerald de Jong, who uh, talks at conferences but doesn't necessarily publish academically. The interesting thing uh, is that uh, yeah, the distinction, the only really hard distinction seems to be by a small group of academics that still don't really understand the kind of legacy of open source communication and what you describe here is a kind of virtual online community that has really fueled a lot of the interest in, in hobbyist artificial life over the past few years. Um, and I'm very thankful to, to have been a, a communicator and part of that. So, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, w- I would like to welcome you back on Biota Live periodically so we can get updates and, and perhaps solidify the directions of this online project that you are currently talking about and maybe i mean as as you've heard with the evo grid um biota live was very much part of the kind of creation and discussion of the evo grid and if you want to uh, similarly utilize biota live as a means for you to come on and talk to to other artificial life uh, artificial life folk in a semi-public or at least a recorded forum please feel free to uh, to set up future biota lives in this light Okay, thank you very much, Tom. Yes, yeah, I did actually meet with Bruce Damer um, in London um, in the summer, which was was interesting. But yeah, I would uh, would certainly love to come back and talk to you some more, um, let you know how things are progressing, and um, talk about some of these other projects too. So yeah, it's been great to talk with you, Tom. Thank you very much for inviting me. Not a problem, not a problem. As I mentioned at the start of the show, we are recording now on uh, Saturday morning, my time, Saturday morning Pacific, so we can have guests as wonderful as Tim Taylor on today calling in from the UK. But also next uh, next Biota Live in two weeks' time, I don't have the date in front of me, but I guess it's going to be sometime in early November, we will be talking with Eric Burton about another online virtual artificial life community crediting going on and uh, continuing to create great things. So I'd like to thank Tim Taylor again for the chance to chat with him uh, today, and thanks for folks for listening in. Goodbye. Thanks, Tom.